uh, appropriate text as we consider scriptures and the history of them. All right, so Psalm 19, the first half speaks to um, knowledge of God through um, general revelation. And then the second half speaks to God's special revelation. Um, let's read, let's, let's start with verse 7. This is David praising the Lord for his special re- revelation. So Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are here today and we're gathered to worship you as a congregation, Lord. And in all the things that we do to Lord today, as we speak to each other, as we hear your word proclaimed, as we hear... Um, as I teach, Lord, about the history of the English Bible, Lord, I pray that it would cause our hearts to worship you more. Lord, that is um, what we are called to do, and I pray that you would uh, be gracious to us and help us and assist us to be worshipful of you. Lord, as we look at uh, the history of the English Bible, Lord, I pray that we would um, see, again, your guiding hand at work. Lord, you are um, providentially causing things to work out um, in history uh, to build your church, Lord, and you're doing that through the proclamation of your word. And Lord, we, um, I pray, Lord, as we consider this, Lord, we would understand the great value that the scriptures have, the great value and the risk um, that men before us um, took in order to um, bring the scriptures to us, Lord. And that, that is part of your sovereign will and um, your grace in their lives, Lord, and it's been passed down to us. And we, of all people, are most blessed because of it. So we Thank you for that. Lord, we praise you, and we are grateful for uh, the time we have together today. May it be honoring and glorifying to you, and may you accept our worship, Lord, as well. May it be pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. All right. Well, instead of giving you an overall synopsis of where we've been, we might be able to have a couple minutes at the end. We can kind of touch base on that. Um, Today, I hope you, you guys can see that. We are going to talk about the history of the English Bible. So for most of us in this room, um, English is our first language. Not all of us, I understand. Um, But this is important to us because it tells us how we got this book. And I hope we have a greater understanding of that, how we have this book in English. um, Because it is, like I prayed, it came to us with great risk, great uh, sacrifice. um, And I hope we understand that and we have a better uh, view, a higher view of the scriptures because of that, and that we don't take it for granted. I know it's, you know, like I said the first day, there's we have one bookshelf dedicated in our house to Bibles. There's about 30 of them, and that there's that wasn't the case, you know, five or 600 years ago, obviously, and we should not take the Bible for granted. So um, last week we talked about... Um, um, the Latin Vulgate and how that was translated from the Greek in um, around four or five hundred uh, A.D. And then for the next one thousand years, the only Bible primarily in the Christian world was the Latin Bible. And then the Reformation occurred. We talked about first the Renaissance and how that renewed a sense of learning into the classics. And then the Reformation occurred, and that's when we have Luther and other folks that we didn't talk about last week, Zwingli and Calvin and other reformers that translated the scriptures into the known languages of the people, into what we call the vernacular. Um, But we barely touched on the translation of the New Testament, Old Testament, the Bible as a whole, into English, and that's what we'll touch on today. So we'll talk about some major figures today of that. Um, Here's our outline for today, and I've mimicked 
this outline on your exhaustive study notes right there that I've, somebody's really glad that I stayed up late uh, writing those for you guys. But my hope in there is that you can take what you want out of it and make notes and hopefully identify some dates, some key terms and people for you to write on that. Some of you are extra spiritual, so you've got a stapled copy. Um, so that's, you're really important to me because you have extra room to write. So I have expectations that you have write more notes. Uh, it's more of a printing flaw on my part that I didn't want to throw away copies, but it sounded more important that way. Uh, so today, I kind of wanted to, because I love history and I'm a history nerd, wanted to paint you just some major dates in the history of England, just so you kind of understand where England is in the world at this time. Um, then we'll talk about some early attempts in England of translating the scriptures. There'll be two monumental figures we talk about. One is John Wycliffe. Um, who precedes the Reformation, and then William Tyndale. We're going to spend a significant amount of time on both of them and the work they did at translating the scriptures into English. Um, we'll also spend some time talking about other English Bibles that were translated in the 16th century. That's the age of the Reformation. And then we'll conclude with the King James Bible, which, written in six, which was translated in 1611. And then if we have time, we'll have some concluding thoughts about where we've been and where we'll be. So one thing I want to point out, kind of started this whole series of lectures talking about how we have this conference, not conference, but this exhibit coming to our church in May called Truth Remains, and it's a collection of old Bibles. Most of those Bibles are English Bibles. I think almost all of them, if I'm not mistaken, are old English Bibles, and most of them are going to be from this era, so they're going to be similar translations, um, and even some of them are original um, copies of those works, those printed Bibles from the 1500s and the 1600s. So that's really neat. So this should paint a picture for that. So you'll see some names of Bibles and um, translators that you'll see in that um, exhibit when you come, hopefully in May. Okay, so here you go. This I gave you very little space because this is not my emphasis. Um, but I just want to give you some ideas of some major events in English history. How, wh what does England look like at this time? Um, and how do we get to uh, England in the 1500s? First of all, just so you know, in 55 BC, Julius Caesar invaded Great Britain and shortly thereafter commandeered um, Great Britain into, to be part of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire had spread through all of the Mediterranean and across the English Channel from France all the way to Great Britain before the time of Christ. Um, Christianity itself came to England in the early 2nd century. Um, the events recording um, Christianity in England from that time up until 731 are um, recorded by a gentleman by the name of the Venerable Bede who wrote an ecclesiastical history of the English people. If any of you took British literature, anybody remember this? Wow, what did I take? Uh, um, I remember taking it, and actually I, we read part of this in high school, and Emily, my wife Emily and I went to high school together. Um, I know that's really sweet. And... <laughs> And for some reason, we have constantly joked with each other over the last 20 years about the Venerable Bede and his ecclesiastical history of the English people. And, and we kind of, it's, I don't know why, this, when you go to Christian school, I guess you read that. That's what we did. Um, besides Bede, the Venerable One, uh, in 1066, William the Conqueror came across the English Channel from Normandy and led the Norman Conquest of England. Great battle at the time is the Battle of Hastings. So now you have the Anglo-Saxon Anglo world now mixed with the Norman world in Great Britain. 1215, the Magna Carta was issued, which outlined, um, it provided for basic human uh, rights, a very important document in the evolution of humanity and individual rights. Also limited to some degree, not completely, the power of the king. Um, that was a very important document in the history, in the political history of the world. That's 1215, the Magna Carta. And then there's several leaders that are important that we need to highlight, especially in the 16th century. The first is Henry VIII, um, who was uh, reigned from 1509 to 1547. Um, and in 1529, the main thing that he did was he broke away from the Roman Catholic Church. So prior to 1529, England was under the authority of the Roman Catholic Church for religious purposes. Religion, and there's not separation of church and state like we know it today, very much intermingled. Um, so really, England was under the authority of the Roman Catholic Church until 1529. 
uh, the, re the primary reason that Henry decides to break away from the Roman Catholic Church is he wants a divorce. His wife's not able to provide him a son, so a future heir, and he chooses to divorce her. And there's a whole lot of emphasis on that. He's actually married to a woman by the name of Catherine Aragon, who is part of, from another Roman Catholic country. Um, and um, they will, the Pope not only would not allow the divorce, but there were some political reasons why he wouldn't allow the divorce, because he knew that would divide uh, the Roman, Catholics Roman Catholic influence. Henry eventually breaks away from the church in 1529. He dies, and he does have one son eventually. He has multiple wives. I think it's four or five. Um, his first son, one of his sons, finally by one of the wives, is Edward VI, who reigned from 1547 to 1553. Before we leave Henry, though, let me just say, during the time of Henry, though, is when we see the English Reformation occur. Um, and it kind of, for, for Henry's sake, eventually he adopts some of the English Reformation. And this, this class is not about the English Reformation, but it comes up. Um, he adopts some of it for political reasons because it shows that they can break away from Rome. Um, so after Henry dies, Edward VI comes to the throne for six years. He's a young, young king, um, and he dies at a very young age. And then for five years, Bloody Mary comes to the throne. So this is Queen Mary um, from 1553 to 1558. She's Roman Catholic, um, staunchly Roman Catholic. Um, actually, her mom is Catherine of Aragon, who is Roman Catholic as well. And in, during her reign is severe persecution of Protestants. Um, and that's why she's called Bloody Mary, very uh, much um, out to get the Protestants and to rid England of Protestantism. She dies, and then one of Henry's other daughters from another marriage, uh, Elizabeth I, comes to the throne, and she kind of ushers in a new level of um, religious toleration to some degree between 1558 and 1603. Her, during her tenure, they subscribe in the Church of England to a, uh, they, instead of being purely Protestant or pur purely Catholic, they called the system of church that they had at the time was called the Via Medea, which means middle way, um, you know, wanting to be Catholic to some degree and Protestant in some way. But really the church didn't stand for a whole lot. But the reformers were still at work in this. That will be important as we talk about um, the English Bible specifically. 1603, after Elizabeth dies, King James from Scotland, somehow, and we're not going to get into that, becomes the King of England as well. So, so King James is important because we're going to talk about the King James Bible. Um, 1603 is when he came to the throne, and he came to the throne with a lot of hope and potential that Protestant ideals, and especially Reformed Calvinistic ideals, would be brought into England. And unfortunately, those were dashed and not um, successful completely, but we do have the King James Bible, which is a great part of King James's life. Okay, so that's your major events in the history of England. I just covered all of English history from before the time of Jesus to the 1600s, so that was really impressive. I think my history teachers in college would have been embarrassed. Um, so a couple things here. Here's some initial attempts to translate the Bible into English. Um, so really, we these, these are some early emphasis after um, uh, Christianity came to England, um, and these are the earliest records we know of people trying to translate into scriptures. The first one is Cadman in the 600s in AD, 600s AD. He arranged biblical stories into English verse. He didn't translate word for word, but he did paraphrase the scriptures and wrote stories uh, with scriptural allusions. So he was the first known person to try to write English into English the stories of scripture. Next was a gentleman by the name of Aldhelm in 709 A.D. translated uh, some of the book of Psalms into English. Now this is English. This is not English that we spoke. This is not the King James English either, which we think is so old and archaic. It's, this, is, this is old English, which is probably not very similar to what we would, probably similar alphabetically, but not as we wouldn't be able to read it as well. Um, so the section he wrote, the, he translated uh, parts of the books of Psalms. Next, our favorite friend, the Venerable Bede, um, in 735, actually translated the entire Gospel of John into Old English. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any preservation of that. Um, and then, um, right around the, right, it's right at 900 A.D., this gentleman right here, who's right there, is King Alfred. Um, it's very 
That's what a king should look like, by the way. It's pretty cool. He's got a sword and a shield and um, very mighty and powerful. He and his abbot of the time, Alfric, um, translated the Psalms in a portion of the Old Testament. In the early 1300s, gentlemen, two gentlemen by the name of William Shorman and Richard Roll um, translated again the Psalms. So there's an emphasis on the Psalms. So that's, that's what we know of people trying to get the language of um, or get the scriptures into the language of the people in England. Um, so not much. Um, all this is prior to the printing press, too. So this would have been all written on uh, scrolls into codex form like we talked about, um, just like those Romans books were in the early, um, at the time of Jesus. Um, so that's 13, around 1300 is when we talked about those guys. The next, this is the two characters we're going to talk about are Wycliffe and Tyndale. So let's talk about Wycliffe for a little bit. Um, he lived from 1329 to 1384. Um, and at the time, he, he's an Oxford scholar and teacher. Um, very influenced by um, um, uh, beginning to get some of that um, return to the original sources um, that we talked about in the Renaissance just a little bit, especially um, some of the uh, scholarship that was going on at the time. Um, England as a whole was under a lot of unrest during this period, and that was mainly because the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church had kind of an overreaching influence on society in England. So, um, you know, you think about America, just, this just came to me, uh, you think about America and how the, when the American Revolution occurred, it was because of the overreaching of the King of England and the excess, excessive taxation and that they were being taxed without representation. Um, think about that, how that was portrayed in the American Revolution. This is probably the same mindset the English people had about Rome. You know, here they are wanting more money, more money, more money, so they can, you know, have up, have build up a lavish lifestyle for themselves, for these leaders, and for the the Pope especially, um, and to increase more and more in power and limit the rights of people. Um, that was England at the time. So there was a lot of unrest between the Roman Catholic Church and the people. And on that stage came Wycliffe, this scholar and teacher. He um, sided with the people against the papal oppression. He was a religious and social reformer, and these are the things he emphasized in England. So these are very, this is, this is the 1300s now. Talk about Luther. Luther's 1517 when he nails the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. So this is 100, 115, 130 years before Luther. So Wycliffe is, and we'll make this point at some point here, but these are things that uh, Wycliffe believed in. He believed in the authority of the Bible. So once again, stressing that point, not the church and the traditions of the church, but the Bible is authoritative. The Bible, in its, in its core writings, is for all men. It's not just for the religious elite to study and then tell people what it says. He believed in the nature of the true church. He believed the fact those that were members of the Roman Catholic Church, within the membership of the Roman Catholic Church, there were believers and unbelievers, um, not every person that was a member of the church was truly converted in his view. Um, the church would disagree with that. He believed in predestination. He rejected the um, view of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist of transubstantiation. So that's the Roman Catholic view that Jesus actually becomes the bread and the water when you, in, when you partake of it. He rejected that. He didn't take it as far as we do, as far as the symbolism aspect of it, but he rejected that view, that mystery of transubstantiation. Um, he desired that the monasteries be dissolved. He didn't see why the godliest of people should be housed in cloisters away from the people, not influencing them. And ultimately, and the, probably the, the thing that was most concerning for the Roman Catholic Church is that he denied the, um, the office of the pope having any divine foundation. Um, he and this is, the, this is not a political correct era, and it probably isn't that way for 500 years, he referred to the Pope as the Antichrist. So, I mean, could you just imagine if, uh, you know, Franklin Graham today called the Pope the Antichrist, what would happen? Um, but that's what he referred to him as. Um, so those are, the, those are the areas. Those are very Reformation-type ideals. These are ideals that are new on the scene. 
and Wycliffe is the initial one to do those things. Yes, at that point, yes. Wouldn't say he necessarily ever broke away in a Lutheran type way, but he was pretty much ostracized from the church itself. Um, so Wycliffe, he valued the common man in that um, he would say this about the common man, that no man was so rude a scholar that he might learn the words of the gospel according to its simplicity. So he knows there's a message in the scriptures for the common man. And because of that, he translated, along with his followers, the Latin Vulgate, so he took the Latin Bible and translated it into English in 1380. Um, he, he probably did some of the translations, probably not all of it, but he probably had a team of folks that helped him with the translation. Um, he dies in 1384, um, doesn't die because of, uh, you know, he wasn't executed or anything like that. But then after he dies in 1384, his followers, who are called the Lollards, uh, continue to teach the gospel and to disseminate copies of the Bible. Now, once again, this is the 1300s, the early 1400s at this point, there is no printing press. So what they're passing out to people are handwritten copies of the Bible. So you know, there's, a, there's hard work in copying the scriptures that he translated from Latin, or they translated from Latin into English. Um, uh, the Lollards, that's their nickname. That's a derisive term for the that they were named at the time by the Roman Catholic Church, and that is translated tongue-waggers. So just that's just for fun to have that. So the Lollards, that wasn't intended to be a nice nickname for them. Um, so no printing press at the time. Um, I think when you study, if you just want to study the Protestant Reformation as a whole, there's several things that always rise to the top as what happens prior to the Reformation, what are key I guess, forerunners or harbingers for the Reformation. And one of them is John Wycliffe. Um, another individual is John Huss in Bohemia, which is modern-day Czech Republic. Um, and John Wycliffe greatly influenced John Huss, who was another reformer prior to the Reformation. Um, so because of, because of um, Wycliffe, England put together some laws about what we're going to do if people try to translate the scriptures. Um, in 1401, the parliament passed De Heretico Comberendo, which means the burning of heretics. And the view here was for Bible translators. So if you were involved in translating the scriptures at all, you were a heretic, and you were condemned to death by burning. Um, translating the scriptures into the native tongue of the people so they can understand what God's saying to them. Scary thought. 1408, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is the leader of the Roman Catholic Church in England um, at the time, a man by the name of Thomas Arundel, he created what's called the Constitutions of Oxford. And this is a statement from that. And this is kind of echoes the whole view of what, what the Roman Catholic Church believed about the scriptures in the native tongue of the people. It is a dangerous thing, as witnessed blessed St. Jerome, to translate the text of the Holy Scriptures out of one tongue into another. For in the translation, the same sense is not always easily kept. We therefore decree and ordain that no man, hereafter, by his own authority, translate any text of the Scripture into English or any other tongue, and that no man can read any such book in part or in whole. So... The first law was like, hey, you better not translate it or you're going to be burned at the stake. This one agrees with that, and then it takes it to another level. No man can read any such book in part or in a whole. So even if you possess this copy, this English translation of the scriptures, and you are caught reading it, you're condemned to death by burning. Wow, shocking. Um, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, um, there are several instances and examples of people that are burned at the stake for reading the scriptures or for possessing the scriptures or for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English without holding it, without having it in their hand. Um, this is a scary time um, that, that the church is trying to hold to um, the scriptures. 
and I'm going to talk about that some as we talk about Tyndale. Why was the church, this is an important question, I think, why, when I say the church, the Roman Catholic Church at that time, why were they so dogmatic in holding to the Latin translation and not the English? And we'll talk about that as we get going. So that sets the stage at the early 1400s. So we have Wycliffe, the 1400s, here's these laws, trying to keep suppressing the people to not um, adhere to the translations of the English Bible. So then onto the stage comes William Tyndale, who lived from 1494 to 1536. Um, Tyndale is commonly known as the father of the English Bible. He's from the city of Gloucester, England, which is important. Gloucester was kind of the center of cloth making, importing and exporting for England. Just remember that note, okay? Um, he was a Greek scholar, educated at both Oxford and Cambridge. He was influenced by Erasmus, who had come for several years to teach at Cambridge. Um, at the time, he's in Oxford, Cambridge, around 1520. Um, there are a group of students that have become sympathizers of Martin Luther. So Luther's works have been printed um, by the printing press around 1517, 1520. His works have made its way all across the continent and across the, con across the English Channel into England. And these um, young people are getting hold of this and become sympathizers with Lutheran. So Tyndale was directly influenced by Luther as well. These guys that met together to talk about Lutheran ideals at Cambridge met at the neighboring White Horse Inn. Um, that's a very um, reformed or reformation kind of place to think about. Uh, if you ever hear of the White Horse Inn, there's a, I think right now there's a blog or a radio show that you can listen to on the internet. It's called the White Horse Inn, and that's where they get the name. Um, so early on, though, um, so he's, he's influenced by Erasmus, who's kind of leading this revival in Greek and going back to the, the sources, to the Greek and the original Hebrew, understanding of the classics, and he's influenced by Luther, which is the Re Reformation ideals, um, primarily of justifi justification by faith alone. Um, early on, his desire was to translate both the Greek and Hebrew scriptures into the English vernacular, which is to say that it was clear and common English, um, not high church English. That was his life's ambition. He said at one point in his life uh, to a gentleman that said that that was unnecessary and that it is not right to do that. He said, if God spare my life, ere many years I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall, shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. So the idea that the everybody should have the desire and the opportunity to learn the scriptures. So he doesn't do this. Here's a little outline for him. This is his uh, his uh, translation eventually. We'll get to that. In 1524, he requests the permission of the church to translate the scriptures into English. So the previous law did say no one had authority on their own, but he was submitting to the authorities, following the right procedure to ask for the um, ask to translate, not to do this, you know, without their knowledge. Um, unfortunately, they reject his plea, and he flees England at that time, because it's like, oh, we've got to watch out for this guy. He's going to translate the scriptures. He flees England, never to return. So 1524, not only does he request it, but he flees England as well. In 1526, he completes his English New Testament. He went to, the, he went to actually Germany, I think to Hamburg, Germany, and ends up in a couple different places in Germany. Um, 1526, he completes his English New Testament. Um, and when he does that, his copies of that work are smuggled into England via the cloth industry. So they have bundles and pallets full of cloths that are sent from the continent over to England. And in between the cloths are his English New Testament, leafs of it. So it's not put together and bound together like a book, but actual individual leafs of the, are, are there, and they're assembled when they get to England. Um, so God providentially using... Um, what appear to be secular means of commerce to bring his word from the continent to England into the language of the people. Amazing. Worthy of praising the Lord for that. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, though, got wind of it. They condemned it, and any copies they confiscated were burned. Um, he was vehemently opposed by the most powerful Roman Catholics in England at the time, which is Cardinal Wolseley. 
and Thomas More. Some of y'all might know who Sir or Saint Thomas More is. He's the one that did not. He was Henry VIII's right hand man. He's the one that would not um, agree to Henry's uh, request for a divorce, and eventually was executed for it in England. Um, but he was a vehement um, opposer of uh, Tyndale. Um, in 1530, he completes a translation of the Pentateuch and starts to work on other Old Testament books. And eventually, in um, 1535, as he's still not going to the, back to England because he's a wanted man, he's betrayed by someone who had been in his confidence, a gentleman by the name of Henry Phillips, and I wrote like in a Judas-like manner, um, and imprisoned near Brussels with what they claimed as committing heresy and refusing to submit to the Catholic Holy Roman Empire, Emperor. Um, and then finally in 1536, he was executed via strangling, and then his body was burned. And his last word was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Last words. So um, what? that's a little synopsis of Tyndale, but I have a couple things I want to go over about him. First, why so much opposition to the Bible being in why is that? Um, I, I, I borrowed this. I think it's a nice way to say it. Uh, John Piper, years ago, preached a sermon. He does a biography, a biographical sermon each year, kind of like Dan does, at his pastor's conference. And he did one about Tyndale, and it's available to you. I would suggest that you read it. You, you will love it. And he gave several reasons why um, there was such opposition to Tyndale in the English Bible. He gave two categories of these this opposition, though, there were surface reasons, and then there were deeper implications that would rise from these surface reasons, and here they are. Number one, there was a belief at the time that, excuse me, that English, the English language itself was crude and was not worthy of the scriptures. Would, just in general, people thought it was a crude um, language that's, you know, it's from a barbaric type nature, and it's not worthy of the scriptures. Whatever. Um, any type of translation poses a risk for error. Be a second one. Um, that's what the people would argue. And additionally, each man would become his own interpreter if given the scriptures in his own language. They feared that. The belief that church tradition said that priests were given divine grace to understand the scriptures. So it was kind of a certain dispensation of grace to the priests that are ordained in the Roman Catholic Church to understand the scriptures in a special way. And then the Roman Catholic Church held to the a special sacramental value that the Latin service had. It's almost like there was something happening mysteriously that we cannot understand. So if we take that away and we're going to put it in the English language, we're going to rob people of the mystery of that blessing. I don't know what that means, but um, that was what they held to at the time. But there probably were two deeper reasons um, for why the opposition was so great. And that was there was a concern to protect the doctrines that the church held to, which were not supported in Scripture. So there's doctrines that the church has done, the Roman Catholic Church at the time, has passed down because of tradition that cannot be supported by Scripture. If we give the people the Scripture in their language, they'll find out. We don't want that. We want to keep this as our thing. Um, and that, by doing that, they were able to have control of individuals, not just individuals, but entire states, countries, um, that that control would be lost if the scriptures were understood by the people. Doctrines relating to the priesthood, penance, purgatory, all were at stake based on um, the understanding of the scriptures. Um, so this is a power play, in my view, and um, that's that was the church's issue. Um, Piper said this in his more exhaustive research than me about Thomas More's criticism of Tyndale. He says, his criticism of Tyndale boils down mainly to the way Tyndale translated five words. He translated presbyteros as elder instead of priest, he translated ecclesia as congregation instead of church. Um, not that church is a bad translation, but church at that time gives the connotation 
of the global Roman Catholic Church, not the local congregation. Um, he translated metaneo as repent instead of doing penance, penance, excuse me. So instead of you working or doing something to achieve something, it's just repentance versus you doing the church's um, desire, uh, the church's requirement of penance. He translated ex molegio, uh, whatever, as acknowledge or admit instead of confess. So both penance and confess seem to be very Roman Catholic in their um, translation. And he translated agape as love rather than charity. So those last three are pretty interesting. Penance, confession, and charity. Those are all things that the Roman Catholic Church requires you to do to have a right standing before God. Those are the works you're doing um, as opposed to, um, let's say, acknowledge or admit or repent or love. Those seem to have a little bit more uh, flavor to them, um, more reformed or Protestant. So the legacy of Tyndale's work, I think this is very important for us to spend some time on that. Um, it was not without suffering. Obviously, this we need to think about this. We need to think about how the English Bible's gotten passed down to us, and it was not um, without great risk. Um, he was martyred because of this in 1536. He left England, his the country he desired to have the English Bible in his hands for the last 13 years of his life. Um, Thomas More relished to see his death, also the death of his closest allies. Many of those men that were involved in him getting the scriptures from the continent to England were hunted down and killed. Um, and not only were they killed, they were first tortured in ways that were probably not appropriate for us to talk about here. Um, but very um, severe persecution and martyrdom for them. So this Bible we have translated in English was bought with the blood of faithful saints. Um, like I said earlier, Tyndale did his translating on foreign soil. Um, his, some of the opponents of the Roman Catholic Church later on say that Tyndale's translation was insufficient because, or wasn't good because it included study notes. It did not. It was just the scriptures. We'll talk about another version of the Bible that included study notes. Um, but it was just the scriptures, no additional commentary or studies. Um, his translate, uh, let's see. His translation was about two-thirds of the Bible. He translated two-thirds of the Bible. He didn't do the whole thing. Um, he'd done a lot of the history parts of the Old Testament, but did not get to the pro prophets. Uh, but just as Luther's Bible paved the way for modern, the modern German language, so did Tyndale's translation for English. So you can see the, the primacy of the scriptures, once they get introduced to the people, are kind of a cultivate a new learning and a new understanding of language. Um, you kind of see that history as God has he's used language and he's used words and he's used writing uh, to encourage his people through his word. Um, quote from one historian says, Tyndale's conscious use of everyday words without inversions and a neutral word order and his wonderful ear for rhythmic patterns gave to English not only a Bible language but a new prose. England was blessed as a nation in that the language of its principal book as the Bible in English rapidly became, was the fountain from which flowed the lucidity, suppleness, and expressive range of the greatest prose thereafter. So it was really Tyndale's genius in translation and his grasp of the English language was amazing. 90% of the King James Version of the New Testament is exactly how Tyndale translated it. So Tyndale does this in the 1520s, and this group of, we'll talk about it, about 50 men come together to translate the King, to, to do the King James translation of the, the Bible. And they didn't, after 75 more years of scholarship, didn't think we needed to do but 10% changes to what uh, Tyndale had done, to credit to what he did. Um, several phrases, I'm not going to get to all these, I'll pick some of them. Se several things that we still have in our scriptures today are Tyndale's exact words. And these are ones non-believers know let there be light am i my brother's keeper in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god there's some these and vows probably but um, there were shepherds abiding in the field so these are just these are things that tyndale passed down directly from us in his translation and it and they they're smooth and they they come off the tongue well they're good language blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted 
Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Um, um, the term, uh, Piper really belabors this in his sermon because he, he's kind of a, a language guy. The, the term, he went out and wept bitterly. That's the term. That's, that's, that, that's translated all the same in our modern translations, the NAS, the ESV, the New King James. But some of the more modern translations that are more dynamic in their translation, they're not literal translations, say, Jesus went out and cried hard. That doesn't say the same thing as wept bitterly. Those words mean something. They're really, it's amazing to think about that. And, and they evoke emotion. They, they evoke thought-provoking by us, I think. So uh, wept hard. That tells me nothing. Wept bitterly. There's a lot more emotion behind that. Um, other things, fight the good fight. In him we live, move, and have our being. Um, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels from 1 Corinthians. All those things are directly from Tyndale, which obviously uh, is, a, is a good rendering of what the original uh, Greek or Hebrew in some cases said. Um, one historian notes, the list of such near proverbial phrases is endless. 500 years after his great work, newspaper headlines still quote Tyndale, though they don't know it. And he has reached more people than even Shakespeare. So this is pre, just so you know, for you English literature people, this is pre-Shakespeare. Shakespeare is the 1600s. Um, this, there's not been this great uh, revival of um, English writing. This kicks it off. So it's, it's an amazing translation, and it's an amazing thing that um, how it impacted the rest of society, not just scriptural translation. All right, so I think we spent plenty of time on Tyndale. And I hope you're blessed by it. I would encourage you to go to the Desiring God website for the John Piper um, sermon on Tyndale. I think it's called Always Singing One Note um, because all he did was sing one note was translate the Bible. Um, so a couple other things. And, yeah, we're going to have to hurry through these. This I, I wanted to highlight these things because when this exhibit comes, the Truth Remains exhibit um, in May, these are some of the Bibles that are – copies of these Bibles are – ones that were uh, produced pretty closely after these were originally done are the Bibles that you can pick up and hold in your hand and read and look at. Amazing. Um, several of them are. Um, 1535, Miles Coverdale's translation was uh, produced. This was the first Bible not to be opposed by leadership. So that's almost simultaneous, right around the time that Tyndale is executed. So shortly thereafter, um, Coverdale's Bible is published in England without opposition from the state. Why is there not opposition? Because 1529, um, Henry VIII VIII breaks away from the Roman Catholic Church, and after about five or six years, it gets to the point where maybe it's important that we have the Bible in the English language. kind of politically evolves for them and becomes more expedient. Um, So Coverdale's Bible, and there's a thought that maybe even Tyndale was aware that Coverdale's Bible was produced. Um, he wasn't held in prison on the continent by England, but rather the Holy Roman Empire, so he wasn't going to be released. Uh, 1537, uh, Matthew's Bible, which was a combination of Tyndale and Coverdale, was released. And that was actually, it's called Matthew's Bible, but of course it's by a, by a man by the name of John Rogers. You know, doesn't make any sense. Um, but I think it was initially done uh, under a pseudonym so he could be protected just in case the winds of change had gone the other way. 1539, the Great Bible, which was the official Bible translation of the Church of England, and it was done at the request of Henry VIII. As I said, it was done more for political uh, expediency than conviction by Henry VIII that the people needed the scriptures in their own language. Um, This was the first English Bible allowed to be read in the churches, and it was actually the primary source for that was Rogers. a copy of that Bible was placed in every church. So people were flocking to the uh, churches to see the Bibles and read the Bibles on their own, so that helped with literacy and people understanding the Bible. Um, 1560, the Geneva Bible, it's also called the um, the Breaches Bible or the Britches Bible because it says that in, uh, um, in uh, Genesis where... Um, Adam and Eve go find fig leaves to cover themselves, that they sewed together breeches. We would translate that now, I think, breeches. Uh, but 
interesting that they call it the Breaches Bible because of that one translation. It's just kind of odd. Um, this, this, as the Great Bible was the Bible of the uh, church, the Geneva Bible kind of became more the Bible of the family. Um, it was printed in Geneva, Switzerland. So S Geneva, Switzerland is the home of John Calvin. Um, it was 1560. That's right around the reign, uh, during the reign of, um, or right after the reign, I guess, of Bloody Mary. Um, but Geneva was a safe haven for English Protestants. So those that were getting persecuted, if they could make it out alive, ended up going to Geneva um, to be protected, and that's where they produced the Geneva Bible. Uh, this was the first Bible to print each verse as a paragraph, and also italicized words that were not represented in the original text, but were inserted for better translation. Um, but also this Bible included reformed commentary. You can't see this here, but there's like a little map on this one. Um, but it probably looks like one of our study Bibles today would have more information. They'd have some commentary um, in the text. Um, that made it unpopular with those Church of England members that were elitists that did not have Protestant uh, leanings. So, uh, especially because it preached a Calvinism they didn't agree with. Um, there were 140 different editions of the Geneva Bible and it maintained its popularity even after the King James Bible came out. It is the Bible of the early American settlements of Plymouth, Jamestown. Um, it's the Bible quoted by Shakespeare. Interesting. And over its first 80 years in print, it sold over 1 million copies. Um, the next Bible right here, underneath there, is the Bishop's Bible, which is the 1568 revision of the Great Bible. So already within the first... A few years of the existence of the Geneva Bible, the uh, Church of England saw the need to uh, print a new Bible, the Bishop's Bible. Um, and it was an inferior translation of the Geneva Bible. And um, ultimately that led to the production of the next Bible. All right, so I've got like five minutes and we can do this. All right, y'all hang tight. I'll, walk, I'll talk even faster than I normally do, which is scary, I know. Um, so King James comes to the throne in England in 1603. Um, and he, one of the first things he does is he calls a religious conference in 1604 to discuss religious toleration. All right, so we're not going to have the reign of Bloody Mary. We want to kind of, he wants to continue down the Via Medea road um, like uh, Elizabeth in some degree so his country will stay cohesive and together. Um, so he calls a uh, committee, uh, calls a conference together, and the main result of that conference was the, somebody submitted that we need to have a new translation of the Bible. You know, we've got to have more and more and more. Um, so he agreed to that. The one requirement he placed on this was that there not be any study notes in the Bible. He wanted it to be different than the Geneva Bible. He didn't want it to have a commentary slanted to a different view um, like the Geneva Bible did. So the translation was done in 1611. It's also known as the authorized version. Um, the work of translation was by 48 Greek and Hebrew scholars from England. They wanted to revise the Bishop's Bible, which was done in 1568. And the idea was that not one scholar would be responsible for the translation, but by the, the group in the whole, they would get a better, more cohesive understanding of what the scriptures were in the translation. So it was a work done by consensus. It took three years to complete. Um, and it, it eventually won the day, not only as the public Bible of the Church of England, but also um, the private Bible as well. So it did replace, over time, the Geneva Bible. Um, we're going to get through this quickly. That's good. Um, why was it such a great translation, and why is it still a great translation? Um, the first thing, in comparison to the other um, ones, well, first of all, it was Tyndale, partly. So that was good, because it was part, partly built upon his genius, but um, there had been enhanced Greek and Hebrew scholarship for almost a century um, prior to that. So the, the fact that people had learned and become more, um, had, had more of an understanding of Greek and Hebrew language um, provided a better scholarship, better translation. Um, at that time, just the study of words and language and literature was at an all-time high. Um, so it was kind of the epoch of literary scholarship and learning, because um, this is the time of Shakespeare, 
and Spencer, who wrote Dairy Queen, those those kind of things were going on sociologically. So there was a, a renewed um, literary learning uh, timing. It was built upon these other translations. So there, there's, they were looking at those translations like, hey, this one wasn't done well. We could improve on this. Let's get back a little bit more to the original here. Um, and it was not the work of one man, but a plurality of experts. Um, so that's why it was a, or is, continues to be a, a, an excellent translation of the scriptures. Um, that gets us to the King James Bible, which um, I know you guys would like me to take some time and talk about when we got the ESV and the NAS and the NIV. And the, I know y'all wanted to really hear about the message. Uh, but uh, <laughs> um, I think this is important because this gets us to the point where we're going to be able to, in the next month or so, look at these Bibles. And I think it's going to be a great blessing to all of you. Um, but I think as you know, we've kind of gone through, I don't know, 2,500, 3,000 years of history in six weeks. And I think it's important, though, that what we focus on is not, hey, this is what this man did, this is what this man did, and I, I probably belabored that point to some degree, but really what it is is God's work at preserving his word. He's provided it to us. He's, he's, he, because he's given us his word, it's important that we understand it, the writing, the reading, um, how he's given it to us. But in all things, God uses means, and he uses men, and he's done that to protect and to provide his word to us. So I hope this study has been a blessing to you. It has for me. Um, it's been uh, a challenge too, um, but it's really uh, one that has been um, great for my personal life. And as I've talked about it with my family and my friends, and it's, it's a great blessing. So I hope it's been that for you too. We are at 1031. I never go over. Does anybody have a question or just a comment or anything? Just or you can go out. All right, let's pray. Oh. Yes. Mm hmm. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, the King James Bible is. There's there's other translations that would be just as relevant and um, accurate today. I think there's. They'd probably have both. They all would have probably pros and cons, um, so I would probably think that would be a kind of a preference type issue, um, in my view. You probably agree with me. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, they they would be a little bit more uh, assured of their view. So, all right, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for um, how you have provided your word to us and how. You have been faithful um, to pass it down through generations to us, Lord, and, and we worship you because of that. Lord, I pray that you would be with, with us today. Lord, I pray that our, um, our uh, time together as a congregation, Lord, would be um, glorifying to you in our conversation, in our listening to the scriptures, and our worship. In Christ's name we pray, amen.